Before we get into the episode, we want to let you know we are gathering another Attaching to God learning cohort. In it, you will escape your anxious jungles and avoiding deserts of faith and grow into secure attachment with God and with others. This is a one-of-a-kind six-week cohort combining recorded teachings and live cohort calls. So you can get all the details at embodiedfaith.life slash learning dash cohorts or see the show notes for details after the description. Is there hope that the darkness of deconstruction might actually lead to a new dawn of faith? Can we really hope to experience God in any kind of tangible or real way? Or should we be suspicious of everything? My name is Jeff Holsklaw, and this is the Being With podcast, seeking to integrate neuroscience and spiritual formation and faith. And then, as always, it is produced by Grassroots Christianity, which is seeking to grow faith for everyday people. Welcome, Brian, to the podcast. Thank you, Jeff. Well, let me introduce him real quick. This is Brian Zahn. He's the founder and lead pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. He's the author of several books, including Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, A Farewell to Mars, uh, and also Beauty Will Save the World. But most recently, he's written a book called When Everything is on Fire, Faith Forged in the Ashes. That's written by InterVarsity. And that's kind of what we're talking about today. You start off by asking just a simple question, which is, is faith still viable in an age of unbelief? So what do you mean by an age of unbelief? And why does that make possibly Christianity unviable these days? Yeah, I think I'm talking about what I would call philosophical secularism. I'm not, I, I get nervous every time I use the word secularism because I'm afraid people are going to hear it in culture war terms. Mm-hmm. And that's not how I'm using it. Um, I'm using it as a word to describe, in one sense, uh, modernity itself, where uh, God has been pushed to the periphery, that God is no longer assumed, mm-hmm. that atheism is a real possibility, Um and this is the kind of thing that Nietzsche foresaw and in his inimitable way foretold would come. So, I mean, we are living in a time that is a particular and unique challenge, not just to Christian faith, but faith of any kind. Um, mm-hmm. So, so, and it's, it began a long time ago. It's been a long time coming, but it has arrived and it's present and we're going to have to learn how to, respond to it, deal with it, live with it, et cetera. Yeah. That's so in the midst of, you and I are both pastors, so in the midst of this need to respond to philosophical secularism, modernity, a lot of people are using this word deconstruction now to talk yeah. about this response or the crumbling of a, you know, of a certain kind of response. So here's a question. Why is it that anyone should trust us? We're pastors, we're theologians, don't we have a stake in conserving the status quo? Why would anyone want to listen to us talk about deconstruction? I get this quite a bit online is that, you know, mm-hmm. Jeff, you're just protecting, you're just circling the wagons. You're not actually entering into this thing called deconstruction. What would you say to something like that? Well, I would, first of all, tell them my story. <laughs> <laughs> I, went through, I went through my own 
well, let, let's let's just let, let's deal with the word deconstruction for a moment. It's not my favorite word to use mm-hmm. when we are describing a critical rethinking of faith and theology and how we understand God is revealed in Christ in our present moment. It's not my favorite word. I mean, I understand where the word comes from, from Jacques Derrida. I understand how he uses it. And that's not really what we're doing here, but I can't avoid it now. Uh, But beginning in the year 2000, well, it really began around 2000, but it was full full force by 2004. Okay, this is when I was 45. I'll save you the math. I'm 62. Okay, we got that out of the way. Uh, In 2004, I just I went on a massive reevaluation of my faith and my theology, and I did it very publicly. And I did it while pastoring a large church Mm -hmm. and was able to lose a thousand people in the process. So, <laughs> so I have skin in the game. I've been down this road. I've lived through what a lot of people would call deconstruction, not my favorite term. Mm-hmm. I use different kinds of metaphors. I talk about renovating your theological house or trying to, to uh, refurbish an icon, restore an icon where the image of Christ has been obscured by whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. I talk about water to one. I mean, I wrote a spiritual memoir on that, describing my own journey. So the first thing I would say is, look, I've been through this. This is not something I am standing apart from as a third party. I have my own experience of having to rethink some things that were costly and difficult. And quite honestly, in the midst of the pain of that, the easiest thing in the world would have been to walk away. That was the mm. constant temptation. I just thought, you know, there's an easier way to go through life than to endure this constant public criticism and have responsibility for a congregation that you are genuinely trying to bring to a better place, but are, you're constantly maligned and misunderstood. So the first thing I would do is say, uh, I'm not just trying to preserve the status quo because 17, 18, whatever it was years ago, I deliberately disrupted the status quo when, in fact, it was quite good for me. Mm. Uh, By the metrics that Americans like to measure success in ministry, I had it made. Just just leave it alone. Don't mess with it. Well, I messed with it because I I just had reached the point where I just knew that somehow the Jesus who captured my heart so long ago deserved a better Christianity than I knew. So in one sense, it wasn't a crisis of faith about Christ himself. But it was a crisis about everything else, about, mm. you know, what does what is a faithful Christianity look like? What is what does it look like for me to lead a church in a way that is, you know, commensurate with what I was called to do so long ago? So, yeah, that's what I would say. <laughs> Good. Well, yeah. And I think what you said is really important. You have skin in the game and you've actually lived. You, you've shrunk your church out. You've opened the back doors of your congregation in the midst of your own uh, theological deconstruction. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of us who, you know, have done those things who are also speaking about deconstruction. Now, certainly there are some who are in a purely defensive kind of mode and they're just out to, they are out to preserve fundamentalism. And we'll get to that in a second. I see that all the time and I'm, that is not what I'm about at all. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Well, (laughs) So let's talk about the kind of the roots of deconstruction. You brought up Derrida, but there are these um, kind of masters of suspicion uh, that um, many people have kind of talked about. 
Paul Ricoeur kind of talked, uh, called them that where you have Nietzsche, Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud, you know, and Nietzsche, you know, basically said everything is just a will to power that you don't really love your neighbor and thing like that. Um, Karl Marx is that we're mostly motivated by money and Freud says, well, we're mostly motivated by sex. And I think a lot of people to kind of, you know, just take some of those kind of terms and start applying them to, you know, Christianity and faith and things like that and say, Hey, all we see is rampant sex, money, and power distorting mm-hmm. the gospel, distorting the church. Uh, so that's why we got to tear it all down. But you say there's other people in the church tradition to listen to, and you bring up Soren Kier- Kierkegaard and newsflash my oldest son is named Soren so I'm a big fan (laughs) so why do you feel like uh, Nietzsche and Kierkegaard you know if only they could have had a a cup of coffee in Paris or something like that that's you know I just like I pine away that that didn't happen you know if if the K-man and Nietzsche could have met that would have been phenomenal Nietzsche uh, Kierkegaard never heard of Nietzsche, that's clear because Nietzsche hadn't begun his public career before Kierkegaard died because Kierkegaard died young, but um, they were still rough contemporaries. Nietzsche may have heard of Kierkegaard. There's some evidence that he'd heard of this strange Danish guy that is no <laughs> longer with us, but had written some books, but he never read anything. So who's but Nietzsche? They are who's remarkably this? similar. And yet they arrive at very different conclusions. They, we, they're, today they're known as the existentialists. They wouldn't have called themselves that. They wouldn't have probably liked that. They, would, they certainly wouldn't have liked to be thrown, have a label put on them. They, they would have hated that. Sure. Uh, but still, they are very similar. And, of course, Nietzsche, uh, at least among Christians, would be, among other things, I suppose, famous for his vitrolic polemics against Christianity. I mean, and he was he was good at it. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things about Nietzsche that I find so appealing is he's just such a darn good writer. I mean, not every philosopher or thinker is necessarily a good writer, but Nietzsche was. And he's he's interesting to read, he's compelling. And yeah, he is he is writing a polemic but on the other hand, Kierkegaard, who remains a believer, I mean, Kierkegaard is a Christian thinker. Uh, he could be every bit as polemic. I mean, just read his attack upon Christendom. It's, it's as fiery as anything that Nietzsche ever wrote. So let's keep in mind that primarily what Nietzsche is critiquing is the moribund state-sponsored religion of Europe that he was aware of there in the late 19th century. And Kierkegaard himself would say, yeah, this is a million miles away from anything that is authentic as far as following Jesus. But the difference is, whereas Nietzsche believed that Christendom was an empty shell, Kierkegaard believed that at the center of it, there still was the true kernel of faith in the word of God, who is Jesus Christ. And so Kierkegaard found a way to critique the Christendom of his day and remain a believer where Nietzsche had chosen to walk away. And I think, I think one of the things we need to keep in mind about Nietzsche, never forget that he was a PK, that he's a preacher's kid. And I think that is significant (laughs) and that he had, he had grown up and I mean, preacher's kids, I've raised three of them, okay? Preacher's kids are acutely sensitive to hypocrisy. 
And Nietzsche notices that, well, that Western Europe in the late 19th century has a carries on a, a pretense of having faith in God, but really has long moved on. And so that's why Nietzsche, in the parable of his madman, which is just brilliant, he says, uh, is a parable. He says, a madman comes into a village on a bright sunny morning, holding, holding aloft a lantern on a bright sunny morning, saying, I seek God. I'm looking for God. Whither is God? I can't find God. And the villagers gather around the absurdity of a man holding a lantern on a bright sunny morning saying, I can't find God anywhere. And they're laughing. And then, then uh, the madman jumps in the midst of the people. And he says, I'll tell you where God is. God is dead. And we have killed him. And then they think this is really funny. And so they're all laughing. And the madman then smashes the lantern and says, oh, I see. I've come too early. My time is not yet. But mm-hmm. it's and then he goes into the churches and sings a requiem for God. Well, this is Nietzsche telling what he foresees, and he's accurate about this. He's, he's not simply making some sort of argument for atheism, although he was an atheist. Uh, he's not making that argument that God doesn't exist. What he's saying is he's trying to alert people that though Western civilization still claims to believe in God, it really doesn't, mm-hmm. that our own our own commitment to science, our own commitment to the Enlightenment, our own commitment to uh, empiricism has, in fact, killed God as having any organizing center for society. Hmm. Uh, now, the difference between Nietzsche and the what we call the angry new atheists, like, you know, Hitchens and Dennett and Harris and Dawkins— um, Whereas these atheists tend to be rather giddy in a celebratory <laughs> mood about God being, quote, dead, Nietzsche was quite nervous about it. Mm-hmm. People who don't really understand Nietzsche will say, well, he was a nihilist. Oh, no, no. he That was his great fear. That's the one thing he did not want to be, but he knew that it was a possibility. Mm. Because he wasn't cavalier about Western society moving on without God. And he speaks of it in very alarming t- terms. He says, we've, we've unchained the earth from its sun. We've sponged away the horizon so that how do we know what's up, down, right, left, forward, backward? He says, we're floating through an infinite nothingness. And he is afraid that if we don't find the alternative of to God, mm-hmm. and specifically God is revealed in Christ, the Christian God, that that in fact the end will be the yawning abyss of nihilism. Now his hope, his solution is what he calls the Ubermensch, this heroic mankind. And I use mankind deliberately, not humankind, because for Nietzsche it was going to be men. <laughs> right, right, for sure. A heroic mankind that strides the words as the world of, as Greek gods themselves. Uh, bringing about a brave new world, use that phrase, through a a determined will to power. And by that, he basically means the will to leave behind what he calls the slave morality of Christian love. You mentioned Paul Ricoeur dubs uh, Marx, Freud, Nietzsche as the masters of suspicion. Mm -hmm. And what they are primarily suspicious of is the reality 
of Christian altruistic agape love. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all suspicious of that. I'll just deal with Nietzsche. Nietzsche says, no, it's not real. That's just a way for the weak to manipulate the strong. And he thinks that this commitment to actually loving everyone is keeps humanity ignoble and weak. And he wants to cast that aside and have a and have the the Ubermensch, the Superman, the Overman that that through will to power will achieve greatness no matter what the cost. Now that's mm-hmm. his, that's his hope. His fear is what he calls the last man or the last men. He they're the last because in this scenario for Nietzsche, this is the end of a failed humanity, mm-hmm. a humanity that fails to become great, and it's the last iteration of this failed humanity. And he describes them in, in just the most condescending terms. Um, he Basically, the last men are incurious, entertainment-addled utilitarians who desire nothing more out of life than a bit of prosaic happiness. And he <laughs> describes them as saying, he says it like this, the last man says, we have invented happiness and blinks. <laughs> I mean, the last man is sedated. He's sitting in front of his screens, you know, just just wants to be entertained. Uh, Doom scrolling on Facebook, just like people are on Facebook watching us right now in this very moment. That's, it. That's exactly what <laughs> but, Nietzsche. But thank you to all who are watching us live on Facebook. We really appreciate okay. you. Speaking of which, you can ask questions. We have some people uh, jumping okay. in with questions. Actually, someone jumped in and said exactly what I was thinking, which is Nietzsche was a pastor's kid. Wow. <laughs> I didn't know that either. So thanks, Mike, for saying what I was saying. So if Nietzsche is offering this trenchant critique of Christianity, of hypocrisy, and he does it uh, along with the rejection of faith, you kind of argue that Kierkegaard gives the same kind of trenchant yeah critique of the hypocrisy in the church and yet he does it uh because of faith and it leads mm-hmm. toward kind of re- of a recovery of love and faith and things like that so how is it that uh how might kierkegaard answer nietzsche in the midst of that he would say i agree with everything you said except he i i don't know i would hesitate to say what kierkegaard <laughs> would say because you know these are two colossal intellects and i'm just you know some guy from St. Joseph, Missouri, but I, I think that Kierkegaard would do what he does so well. He would turn the conversation toward the toward Jesus, mm-hmm. toward. But what do we do with this one here? What do we say about him? And now, how are we responsible to respond in some way or another to the Christ, to the claims that Christ makes? Um, Nietzsche was so strong on that. Both of them, both Nietzsche and Kierkegaard despised, and I don't, I use that word, you know, in its most technical sense, they despised the crowd. Kierkegaard calls it the crowd. Um, mm. Nietzsche will usually call it the herd. They both were very resistant to groupthink and just following along. And Kierkegaard is always saying, you have to make a decision. You have to decide. And he'll say that in, in regard to who is Christ. Now make a decision one way or the other. Either wholly reject him or say, I will only know if what he says is true if I seek to live out what he calls me to do. And Nietzsche says we must take that leap to faith. 
Mm-hmm. And we'll never know unless we leap toward an obedience of faith, because faith for Kierkegaard and for and he's right is not is not something we just hold inside our head in a compartment called theological opinion. It is an orientation of our life. It's decisive. It's 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 how we live. Nietzsche was, I mean, Kierkegaard would say, a faith that doesn't change the way you live, that's no faith at all. Uh, mm, a faith right. is a decisive act to live in response to something that you have encountered. Mm. I, I think that, and it's interesting because this is a problem for Nietzsche, because Nietzsche occasionally will try to attack Jesus, but he, he doesn't have any heart for it. And then he, he just despairs of that and then begins to grudgingly admire Jesus. Right, and right. Um, and this is the thing to criticize or critique Christianity. Come on, how hard is that? <laughs> Let's be honest; it's pretty <laughs> not easy. hard. Uh, not yeah, and I can do it with the best of them. Uh, but no one seems to be able to credibly mount and sustain a direct attack upon Jesus Himself. A few have tried, and they it just it's a bad look. People just think, hey, that that just doesn't ring true. Uh, Jesus still seems to stay above the fray. And and almost everyone, even the most virulent critics of Christianity, somehow know that this figure, Jesus, is not like the worst things they see in Christianity. Even, Even critics are able to make that distinction. And I, and I find that very interesting that Jesus just keeps shining through. So I think I think Kierkegaard would direct the conversation toward Jesus. Oh, kid, who? Sure. Nietzsche was familiar with. He was a Lutheran pastor's kid. He grew up yeah. in that world. And, well, and I don't want to pick on it because I like Nietzsche. I'm just saying I, I sure, do. Sure, sure. Uh, but he was, and I feel kind of bad about saying this, but I just feel like we need to say this. He was also rejected. He proposed marriage twice and was rejected both times. Mm. And so I wonder how much of that just love sucks <laughs> sort of lurks yeah. in the background. I mean, you know, we cannot really separate the philosophy from the philosopher, right? And well, I I think that's a, a good transition because I think a lot of people now, you know, they probably wouldn't suffer from a broken heart or, the you know, love unre- unrequited. Uh, romantically, but I think a lot of people have deep disappointment coming from the church, yeah. deep, deep pain that has been caused by the church that is propelling kind of the intellectual and practical deconstruction that people are working through. But before we turn to Jesus, I think um, a lot of people are trying to mitigate that that um, leap of faith and the radical obedience Um by putting the Bible at the center of their faith, mm. by trying to make it their foundation. So yeah. you talk quite a bit kind of about, uh, and I do too, about how f- fundamentalism is actually primarily what I think people are deconstructing, not Christianity yeah. itself and following Jesus. Um, and so could you talk a little bit about that? You say the Bible is not the foundation of faith. Yeah. Uh, does that mean you've given up on the Bible, Brian? Do you hate the Bible? I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm like a Bible nerd. <laughs> Yeah. I, I've got Bibles stacked all around me. I read the Bible every day. I try to curtail how much I read the Bible. <laughs> I think I read the Bible too much. Uh, so, no, I love Scripture, and I always have. I just know it's not the foundation of faith. Jesus is the only foundation. 
And I learned that from the Bible. <laughs> and right. here's, here's what happens. Here's what happens. We have, we have the birth of the Enlightenment. It comes to us via Rene Descartes, who was a believing Catholic and a seminal thinker. And he's very important. And he wants to find a new epistemological foundation. That is, you know, what is the bedrock of knowledge that we can build on? And he's working on this problem. He says, well, you know, you can doubt everything. Everything can be doubted. Right. I mean, what, what is beyond, I mean, what can you absolutely prove to the extent that it can't be doubted? And, 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 and uh, Descartes can't come up with anything. Says I can doubt everything. I'm just sitting there. I'm thinking about. It. I can doubt everything I think about. And then he says, "Aha! I am thinking while I'm doubting everything. I am thinking cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am." And this becomes the epistemological foundation for the Enlightenment or for empiricism. The the individual thinking self all alone inside their head, be, and. and Descartes thinks he's found epistemological bedrock. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I think there's problems there, and a lot of thinkers think so. Right. But he's well intended. But the problem is, is within empiricism there is an implicit claim, or sometimes explicit, that all that can be known in the phenomenon of being is what we can ascertain through the five physical senses. So it leads to a materialist world. And I, I you have to under, don't misunderstand me. I have no, I have no opposition to any kind of science. I mean, that's, that's not me. Um, I know of no scientific theory that is any threat to Christian faith. I have no problem with it. I'm simply my only reservation is that once through empiricism or logical positivism or scientism, whatever you want to call it, uh, once science has said all they can say about the phenomenon of being through the application of the five physical senses, there's still more to be said. Mm -hmm. And you haven't exhausted the phenomenon of being. Okay, so this is empiricism. But it becomes a threat to the church and to tradition and to faith. And as we as it moves out of just the academy and the intellectual elite, as it begins, let's say, you know, 19th, 20th centuries, begins to move into the popular world, just just the everyday world. Um, there is a reaction among certain religious people that creates what we call fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. And that is it basically accepts the terms of empiricism, but says, OK, but we have. Uh, our empirical proof in the form of Scripture. And so that they simply say, okay, the Bible is our empirical proof, and they have to back it up by claiming that the Bible can be, in fact, empirically proved, and then they're off on their quest to find Noah's Ark on top of Mount Ararat or Rusting right. Chariot, the Red Sea or something like that. And they're out to prove the Bible because they've made the Bible their foundation. And this is, uh, it's a, it's a particularly Protestant problem, although you can have other versions of it within the Catholic and Orthodox world. But it's it's peculiar to Protestants as a real problem. And right. it, it, fundamentalism tends to be biblical fundamentalism, where they're trying to make the Bible something it cannot be. 
and everything gets very tightly tied together so that if you can come up with a single contradiction or if you can, you know, disprove one, you know, kind of fun. I mean, if you find out, okay, the universe actually isn't 6,000 years old. It's actually 13.8 billion years old, (laughs) plus or minus 0.04%. And you find that out and you think, oh, well, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead. (laughs) And so they, they, they leap from one fundamentalist extreme to the other. I've seen people leave Christian fundamentalism, but keep the fundamentalism. They're still a fundamentalist. They're just no longer a Christian. And so the real problem is, and you're exactly right, Jeff, almost all that we call deconstruction that I see today, especially when tinged with a little bit of anger, is almost always deconstruction from fundamentalism. Or let's just, let's even make it a little softer. Let's say evangelical. Um, It's funny. is it funny, sad, tragic, poignant? I don't know what word to use. All of them. Uh, that, that I will see for all kinds of good reasons that I completely understand and have had my own experience with. I see evangelical Christians deconstructing their evangelical Christian faith, leaving the Christian faith, but they remain evangelical in a couple of senses. One, in the sense that one of the one of the shortcomings of evangelicals is they tend to think that evangelicalism is the only true, honest, valid expression of Christian faith there is. And so they don't really pay much attention to orthodoxy or Catholicism or even mainline Protestantism or an Anabaptist tradition. They or, tend to believe that evangelical evangelicalism, yeah, the yeah, global expression. The only kind. And so once once they have decided that for them evangelical Christian faith is no longer tenable, there are no other options. See, they've remained an evangelical even in the rejection of it. Mm-hmm. And so and I find that strange and sad. Uh, often what I will counsel people that are going, I say, you just may need to find a new. And I'm, look, I'm a guy that's been a pastor of one congregation for 40 years. And in my entire 62 years, I've only belonged to two churches in my life. So I'm not like, you know, one of these guys that advocates jumping from church to church. Maybe you're going to need to get out more, Brian. (laughs) That being said, that being said, sometimes people just need to find a new expression, practice of Christian faith and not saying, well, this fundamentalist Baptist church, they taught me this, that, and the other thing. And I can't believe that anymore. Therefore I'm done with Christianity. Hmm. I, I think faith in Christ is, precious enough to maybe spend a little time checking out some other options. Well, why don't we get into uh, this faith in Christ, this uh, radical experience or the revelation. Could you talk through uh, you near the end of the book, you uh, talk about this letter you wrote uh, to an atheist and you mentioned Bigfoot and uh, you know, if you knew enough people that uh, had experienced or claimed to see Bigfoot, like you might, you know, go out into the woods. Could you explain kind of what you were doing with that idea of Bigfoot and kind of lead us into this question about prayer and mysticism? Yeah. By the way, I'm not, I'm not a, a advocate of Bigfoot. <laughs> okay. I'm not, I'm, I'm not a purely illust- it, it, yeah. It's just a thought experience. It's, it's, it's an illustration. Okay. Right, people, right. this is exactly. not a literal well, kind of, don't check his car for bumper stickers about Sasquatch. And yeah. <laughs> Although I do have wood. I'm looking out my window right here. I, have woods. I would love to see some strange animal down there. But, uh, but that's also not an invitation for any listeners to go out to his house and walk around <laughs> his yard. Okay, I just want to be clear. Well, one of the 
problems of the Enlightenment, of empiricism, is that we have been trained to distrust this other organ of knowledge, which which we generally call the heart. You can call it other things. I don't mean sentiment. I don't mean mere emotion. I just mean there is that part of being where we encounter, let's let's say things like love. I mean, a, a true logical positivist materialist has a hard time, and most of them won't attempt to accept the reality of love. This, ah, you know, it's, it's, it's advantageous to the survival of the species, or it's, you know, it's how we raise our, it's, it's advantageous to the to child rearing. It's, it's a chemical response. It's, it has to do mm-hmm. with, with sexual reproduction. And I think most of us will go, okay, fine. I'll, I'll say yes, yes, yes. But it's more than that. That love actually is real. There, there, that, that, altruistic co-suffering, lay your life down for another love does exist and it's real. Mm -hmm. And it's something I can't prove in an empirical method, but my own experience tells me day after day after day that it's real. And in fact, it's the one thing that makes life worth living. So it's Blaise Pascal, the intellectual contemporary and equal of Rene Descartes, who in his pensée, as a result, by the way, of his own mystical experience, with God, right? Says the heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. Very famous axiom, but I think it's so true. The heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. So we're not we're not arguing with. And, and first, it come Blaise Pascal. He's he's one of the greatest mathematical minds in history. You can't say that he wasn't rational or that he had some sort of contemptuous attitude toward reason. He was eminently reasonable as a mathematician, but he just knew that there were there were there are ways to encounter other phenomenon within the mystery of being than the intellect. And it's through the heart. And I just want to call people to say, look, pray mm-hmm. and come come down out of your head, out of that attic up there with all the dusty National Geographics, <laughs> and come down into the heart, into the hearth room. And bring your fears, your concerns, your doubts, your questions, and just sit with Jesus and pour them out. And sit there quietly for a while. Don't be in a hurry. And and see what response you might experience. If you want to know if God is and who God is, then go about the practice of which millions, yea, I suppose billions of people will testify where God is encountered, and that is in prayer. Mm-hmm. If all we ever do is think about God and never actually pray, I don't think we've exhausted all the possibilities of how one might encounter God. And so I invite people into the place of prayer, however they understand that. I mean, I do a whole course on, on prayer, but I'm not going to necessarily say you have to do that. But but until you have actually spent some time praying, that is speaking to God directly, and then being quiet long enough that maybe there might be a response, you haven't exhausted all the possibilities. And so I want to invite people into that. Mm. Yeah, well, it's difficult to find love in a world if you don't believe it exists in the same yeah. way. It's difficult to find God if you're not looking for him 
or if you don't believe that he exists, or if you believe that any experience, you kind of create counterfactuals and talk yourself out of it. Um, but in some ways people, um, so, but you talk about, uh, finding Jesus or having a revelation of Jesus. And and I think you're right that a lot of people who are deconstructing actually want to get back to Jesus in some way. So what would be some advice or some of your experiences of how you've gotten back to Jesus? And then how does that connect with mysticism? You talk about these kind of like mystical encounters with God. Yeah. Um, maybe, I'll, people... maybe I'll start one end and go to the other, but okay, it was Carl Rahner who in 1971 is a German Catholic theologian. Karl Rahner said, the Christian of the future will be a mystic. That is someone who's experienced something or they will cease to be anything at all. Hmm. Uh, I think that's very prescient. Karl Rahner said that 50 years ago. What Karl Rahner called the future in 1971, I think I would call today. <laughs> I, think, I think we've arrived at that moment where the Christian of the yeah. present we'll have to lean more towards some kind of mysticism or they may not have any faith at all. Now I know I, I completely get it that some people are turned off by the word mystic or mysticism or mystical. Uh, don't be by Christian mysticism. We simply mean someone who seeks and at some level attains some kind of experience within the mystery of God. And this is given to us in scripture as completely normative. I mean, the the scriptures will say, yeah, you can experience God. And it gives us, what, hundreds of examples of ordinary people who have extraordinary experiences with God. And so you can't you can't manufacture it. You can't just, you know, like like you do your Uber Eats and just demand that it be delivered to your house. I would like to order a mystical experience. It doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. But you can seek. And you can, I mean, I tell people, try something like this. If you, if you want to, if, you, if you've reached the point where you don't want to believe, I, don't, I, can't, I can't help you other than to say you, you're loved by God. Mm -hmm. And uh, God's love towards you is, is eternal, and you can't, you can't stop that. <laughs> God loves you. But if you, if you do say, I, I, I feel like my faith is hanging by a thread but if it's possible for it to be saved, I would like it to be saved. I would say, all right, try this. And I know I'm not, a, I'm not, I'm not just, I'm not trying to put a lot of faith in a technique, but I just, just try this for a while. Don't read any of the Bible except the gospels and maybe only read John, but whatever you want to do and just read it. Not trying to understand it, not trying to interpret it, just trying to, encounter Jesus. Read little parts, maybe read it aloud, but slowly. Uh, read it with try, try, trying to bring your soul into a, into a state of reverence. Read that passage and then just sit and see what happens and what, what might be spoken unto you out of the silence. Mm -hmm. uh, those kind I've seen people recover their faith and 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 get back on track. It, it's mm -hmm. something new, something better, something improved. The water turns to wine, or if you want to use deconstruction, uh, some things that needed to be torn down and renovated were torn down and renovated, but they didn't lose everything. Right. The other thing I would say is, um, and this is another phenomenon. 
an outgrowth of the Enlightenment is that we're all individualists. And even Nietzsche, and, well, Kierkegaard especially. Kierkegaard wanted his tombstone to read The Individualist. <laughs> <It didn't. laughs> and, and I get, I understand what he was doing. I understand he was reacting to the crowd. He famously talks about the crowd being untruth. I get all that. And I'm with him. But that can, that can be overdone, too. Right. Um, it, it, then you become responsible for your own faith all by yourself. And that is a foreign concept to the church and to Scripture. Uh, basically, the, the apostolic way of thinking about faith is it's something we do together, that we believe together. And when you are believing all on your own, it's very easy to someday just be overwhelmed. Mm. And, and then maybe you don't find your way back. So, so we believe together. And sometimes, you know, we let others carry us. We let others' faith carry us at times. And then we receive the the time-honored, tested, vetted prayers of the church. So one of the counsel I give to people is when you can't pray, at least say your prayers. Again, I understand the monster <laughs> is kind of offended by that. But, but when you can't pray, at least say your prayers. And it can mm. carry you through that dark night of the soul. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think that one, that advice actually works great for evangelism for people who are seeking that are outside the church is just say, hey, well, read the gospels or just pray as if God does exist and see what happens. Uh, someone jumped in, um, you know, you're speaking about um, people who are seeking and you mentioned prayer and Vern mentioned that to those committed to know God or that there isn't, I think he said that there is no God. Um uh, prayer is at best uh, produces coincidences. And I think that's true if someone's really committed to atheism, but that's not true for those who are agnostics. I think that's, it's, it's really good advice for people who are just searching around share say, Hey, just live as if this was true and see yeah. if someone doesn't speak back to you live as this, this is true and see if those coincidences in your life might actually be right. God at work. Um, and so the living as if this is true is something I feel like um, people that I've known, who talk, who say that they're deconstructing faith, uh, I look at their life and it's like, well, it's not so much that you're deconstructing faith. You're actually living now as if you have no faith. You've just stopped mm. living. Uh, and I'm not sure that that is going to help people kind of continue forward in their journey and, and finding Jesus. It's just, they're just giving up on the kind of on the journey. I don't know if that's been your experience, but those are. Well, and, and, but then that raises another question. Then what? Um, I mean, I don't want. I don't. I'm. I want to be pastoral. I don't understand our context. You know, I just see you and me, and we're having this conversation sure. Monday afternoon. But uh, you know, there is the, there is the real question of Jesus. Or what? I don't put it in the book. I wish I would have. But uh, Nietzsche, <laughs> one of his famous laments is two thousand years and no new God." <laughs> well, and I want to say, Nietzsche, there are not going to be any new gods. That one, one of the accomplishments of Christ is to sweep yeah. the field clear of all rivals. And so it's Jesus or what? I would contend, ultimately, that it's Jesus or what Nietzsche feared most, that, mm -hmm. that we're left with some kind of nihilism. We may not... We may not call it that, but it's just like yeah, that that life doesn't have any inherent meaning. There is no framing 
you know, arc of a narrative that makes sense of the phenomenon of being. We'll just try to make it through the best we can, you know, watch some Netflix and be happy. Um, it's Jesus or what? I mean, I, this is where I, I just love the Apostle Peter. Sometimes he gets it right. Sometimes he gets it wrong. But when, you know, people are leaving Jesus because they found that what he is saying is so strange. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And Jesus, in a very poignant moment, turns to the 12 and says, are you guys going to leave too? And Peter mm-hmm. says, you know, where are we going to go? <laughs> We've come to believe that you have the words of life. Right. And that's, a, that's such a powerful moment that it's Jesus or or what? It's some, and sometimes it becomes, you know, because Christians are kind of novices in the political world all of a sudden. I mean, <laughs> I thought we were experts. <laughs> they, they just entered the political world within the last, you know, generation or so, and they're naive about it. And they don't understand how dirty and ugly the world mm-hmm. acts that world can be. Uh, and they want to put a lot of faith in that whole political process to change the world. I, I, I can already hear the criticism. I'm not apolitical. I'm not advocating quietism. I'm just saying I'm not going to put my faith in some politicalism or party to save right. the world. <laughs> just, Amen I to just that. To do that. Uh, so I think, you know, you, you come out of, you know, I'm not going to be a Christian anymore, so I'm going to be a, a Democrat or, or a Republican or whatever you're going to be. Well, good luck, pal. You know, I think, you know, give that a decade and you'll be pretty disillusioned too. Oh, and so sure. uh, to, to what degree Jesus is in any way attractive to you, lean mm. into that. Right. If, if there's if there's one beam of light that comes from Jesus that you still find attractive, focus on that one beam of light and see mm. what might be recreated in your soul. Oh, I love that. Well, with the last the last couple minutes here, uh, I kind of want to turn turn the tables a little bit. We've been talking about kind of modern Christianity, modern faith, fundamentalism, and people who are deconstructing it or walking away from it. But someone before I got in the show, I asked for some questions. If someone asked. Well, what about those people who are deconstructing a secular faith or deconstructing secular philosophy and are actually moving their way back into an enchanted world? Does a deconstructed mm. church have anything to offer those people who are actually looking for their re-enchanted mm. world? I, I, I see that question. in the world a, a huge uptick in kind of pagan yeah. interest. Yes, yes, of which yes. I just last week, I was sitting at Starbucks and the woman right next to me had a book called the psychic witch. And it was like this. And I, I, I pulled it, I pulled it up on Amazon. And I should have like just started talking with her. And it was basically, I read the table of context. It looked like spiritual formation for witches. It kind of had practices and had mindsets. It just looked like spiritual formation, but for the occult. And so I see this huge uptick. And part of my concern is, is like all this deconstruction. It's kind of like, but people are kind of moving the other way. They're coming right. out of a secularism so and a that naturalism. Is- so what, what do you see on the horizon or what does your heart do when I kind of put that out there for you? I love that question. I, I, the question's better than any response I'm going to come up with, but I love it. <laughs> All right. Um, well, let's try. But it, I think it's, I think it's very insightful. I think it's very insightful. I think there are those who for all kinds of reasons, and look, I, I understand all the reasons I'm, I've been a critic of a lot of, you know, aspects of American nationalism. I mean, a real, a real critic. You understand? I mean, oh, absolutely. And I agree with all that stuff. So, with you, thank but, you for being such a critic. Be the the very moment that we're running out is at the same time that people are looking for 
I can tell you this. People want to believe something. Mm -hmm. They want to believe there's more than just a materialist world. Mm -hmm. They want to believe that, that somehow there is a God or gods or that there are angels or that there's a spirit or there's something beyond just what we can find in a telescope or a microscope. Here, I'll give you an example. In 2016, uh, Perry and I, that's my wife, for the first time walked the Camino de Santiago in, uh, well, the, the famous route is the Francis route. It starts in Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port, France, crosses the Pyrenees. 500 miles later, you arrive in Santiago de Compostela, Spain. It's an ancient pilgrim route. Uh, Christians began walking it about 1,200 years ago. It reached its peak about 800 years ago when half a million people a year were walking. Oh, wow. Santiago. Yeah, it was a big deal. And, of course, medieval pilgrims walked for the purpose of reaching the cathedral where the relics of the saint were housed. And they could venerate the relics and receive whatever blessing that came from that. All right, make of that what you will. Uh so, but then, but then pilgrimage began to decline with the Reformation, and then as we enter into, you know, the 20th century, there was a precipitous drop-off till it almost completely died out. In the 1960s, though, I forgot his name, a Spanish monk realized that in our disenchanted world, people are going to want something mm. like this. And he just, he just, he thought, the Camino's coming back. You know, nobody walked. I mean, you know, a few dozen people a year walked it in the 60s, you know, a year. And he thought, no, it's coming back. And so he he began to mark the way with mm-hmm. he, he, he had these yellow spray cans. And to this day, it's marked with these yellow fletches, you know, arrows. <laughs> and and he, he just started, you know, he would put them on curbs or on a rock or on the side of a tree. And he was marking the way. Mm. And policemen would, this is like during Franco's, you know, they're not sure what's going on. And policemen say, what are you doing? He says, I'm preparing for an invasion. <laughs> <laughs> that probably didn't and, go over and well. He was, he was right. He was. Pro- he didn't live to see it. He himself didn't live to see it. Yeah. Today, about a quarter of a million people a year walk, mm. arrive in Santiago from this round. So, so I've done this now three times. So not just, so I've, Perry and I've walked it three times. Mm. And you meet people, of course, from all over the world. I would say the majority, the vast majority of them are not religious. Okay, let's say, let, let me let me finish this one thought. So medieval people walked a pilgrimage to reach the relics. Well, right. that's not why we walk it. I mean, if I if I want to be in Santiago, I can be there in 24 hours from about anywhere in the world. Just get on a plane and go. So the point isn't. I mean, it's the cliche, but the point is it's the journey, not the destination. But so I've met hundreds, if not thousands of people, you know, on three Caminos. And they come mostly, you know, they come from all over the world. But, you know, because of its location, a lot from Western Europe, which is thoroughly secular at this point. Mm -hmm. And yet, no, I have not met one person who has walked the Camino and doesn't feel its intense spirituality. And are attracted to it. And I've met many that say, you know, I don't really believe, but I but I go to all these churches. And I love the beauty and I'm drawn to them. And I go to the pilgrim masses. 
And they may say they don't believe, and yet when a priest offers to bless them as a pilgrim on the way, they say, yes, I want that blessing. And so I do see that in a thoroughly secular, disenchanted world, there is a yearning for mystery, for something spiritual, for something transcendent. Mm. And, and yeah, there are plenty. I haven't had that thought before. There are plenty of people who are deconstructing from their secularist, materialist, disenchanted world and say, I, the promises of modernity have left me empty. And I'm, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I got to become a witch <laughs> or what, but I want something beyond this materialist world. Mm. And, uh, Yes. And so I think there's something actually better than being a witch. I think I think <laughs> Amen. God is revealed in Christ. I, I saw a friend of mine just tweeted, uh, he's a Catholic priest. I saw it just last week and I thought it was the funniest thing and sad. He said, the, the ex-evangelical desire to become a literal witch. <laughs> mm-hmm. The ex-evangelical desire to become a literal witch. Yeah. Okay. Well, that says volumes, just that one little sentence. Well, thanks so much for jumping on. And just so everybody knows, uh, he had been kind of talking about uh, his new book, When Everything, let me get the title right, When Everything's on Fire, Faith Forged from the Ashes. So, Brian, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for kind oh, of spitballing about that last thing. That, about the, the the pilgrimages, I was just thinking while you are talking that people, uh, no matter whether they're deconstructing or maybe, you know, looking into you know pagan things or whatever that they're really looking for an embodied faith and they're looking for beauty and they're looking for yes. blessing and i yes. think that, that you know we need to be a church that can offer that beauty and that blessing and offer that fully um kind of embodied and sacramental kind of life and if we exactly. can do that again uh and kind of put behind the fundamentalism and the modernism that has kept us from those things then maybe there is a future for the church i believe there is because if we're focused and founded on Christ, then we know that there is a, is a future. Well, thanks so much. Thank you, Jeff.